Amen. Thank you, Melissa. Great thought. Good job. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Uh, we want the measure of our faith to be what we do when everything's well. Uh, in reality, the real depth and measure of our faith is when all's not well. And I wish I could tell you that if you know Christ as Savior, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Uh, but life in a broken world amongst broken people has got plenty of valleys, amen? And uh, I pray that God would shine through all of us in those times too. Matthew chapter 5. We uh, started talking about a practical doctrine uh, a couple of weeks ago that's poorly understood in our culture. Our culture usually fails to understand where rightful authority comes from. It usually fails to understand how leaders should use rightful authority and how those who follow should respond to that leadership. And unfortunately, uh, it is one of the things that is hastening the collapse and deterioration of our culture. Now, I do think that some of God's people understand rightful authority. I do think some of God's people understand biblical leadership and what it's like to be a biblical follower. But the fact of the matter is, is even if we understand it, we are all influenced by our culture. And it just ekes in and subtle ways into our thinking, and if that were not enough, uh, all of our flesh hates authority. We hate authority if it's not our own. And as I said last week, I'm not teaching on this subject as far as I know because of some problem with rightful authority here. I'm teaching on this because uh, I planned to teach on it quite a long time ago, and honestly, I want us to have healthy homes. I want us to have a healthy church. I want us have healthy marriage, and this is a part of that being so. Authority, of course, is the power to command, enforce laws, exact obedience, to judge a person or a situation as being right or wrong. And we've talked about the foundation of all rightful authority, uh, the fact that God is our creator. Uh, he makes rules. He decides what sort of uh, justice and punishment gets meted out for disobedience. His, to his rules, he decides what blessings result from obedience to them. Uh, but God cannot be seen visibly today. He cannot be heard audibly today. And as we learn, because of that, God has delegated some of his authority to his written words, uh, a source that we can hear uh, audibly and see visibly. And we talked about how then God in his word delegated some of his authority to certain people in certain situations. We talked about the authority of a husband over his own wife, one equal choosing to submit to another equal. We talked about the authority of parents over their own children, one equal submitting to another equal. We talked about the authority of a pastor over the congregation he's been called to lead, one equal choosing to submit to another equal. And I've made it very clear, I've said it many, many times, if you're here and you actually want to know how submissive you are to rightful authority, how humble you really are, because humility is really actually on display uh, in this issue. If you really want to know, uh, check on what you do uh, when rightful authority is exercised on an issue you don't agree with. It's not in or out of the Bible. It is just simply that individual exercising an authority where God gave him authority. If you really want to know, uh, that's how you find out because that's the time when our real submission to rightful authority is actually tested. By the way, 
if something is not actually in, uh, if something is directly in the Bible, our submission to the authority of God is on trial. And you, uh, as I've said many, many times from this pulpit over the years, you and I ought to never follow someone with rightful authority who is disobeying the Bible, because that is to disobey God. Uh, I've also made it really, really clear that God did not give authority to husbands or parents or pastors to do what they want to do. He gave them authority to do what He wants done. And then last week we closed out uh, talking about uh, a biblical truth that would greatly help uh, leaders and followers if we would just apply it. We saw how the wise man was very clear that leaders should not take to heart everything that followers say about us because we all know that at weak moments we've all said things that should not be said. Uh, careless and critical words are not okay for anybody. They're not okay for leaders. They're not okay for followers. But when you and I keep in mind that we have at times said things we shouldn't say, it helps us keeps it all in focus. It helps us not be as bitter and uh, angry as we can tend to be uh, at times. Now tonight, what I want to do is to spend some time talking about three other biblical truths that specially help both leaders and followers. And again, I understand the subject is not as interesting as me teaching on Revelation, but this particular subject is very important to practical living. It is very important to our homes and our marriages and the Lord's church, as well as to our culture. And so uh, I would really urge you to listen on purpose and have a humble enough heart to let God teach us through His Word on this difficult issue. If you would stand tonight, please, if you're able to stand in honor of God's Word. Tonight we're just going to talk about three biblical truths to help both leaders and followers, and we're just uh, on part three of God's authority in our life. Uh, by the way, when I say Matthew 5, what comes to your mind first? Sermon on the Mount. Whenever anybody says Matthew 5, 6, or 7, that is the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus teaching His disciples from a mountain. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, there's a similar sermon, uh, but it is Jesus speaking to His disciples from a plane, P-L-A-I-N, flat ground, not the one that zooms over everybody. Um, and, and so Matthew 5, 6, or 7, this is a sermon amount. This is Jesus teaching disciples. If you're here tonight and you're a believer in Jesus, this has special application to us. Matthew 5, verse 44. But by the way, this is some of the most difficult things that Jesus taught. There are things that are meat of the word because it's difficult to understand. You know, the ten toes of the vision in Daniel that were miry clay mingled with iron. Okay, that's meat of the word. It's hard to understand. This is meat of the word. It is very hard to do. But Jesus didn't tell us this because it was impossible to do. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. Sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. By the way, notice in verse 46, publicans can love, agape love, other publicans. You don't have to have God in your life to have agape love. We're made in the image of the God who is love. But publicans can love other publicans. But that's not our standard. Verse 47, and if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? By the way, that's a great Bible principle. Jesus expected his disciples to do more than others, not the same as the publicans, but with him in our life more than others. Verse 48, be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Thank you. You might be seated. In this particular section of instruction of Christ, we see the first practical truth to help leaders and followers of all sorts. And here it is, number one. We need to decide that what we do as a leader or a follower depends on us, not on what someone else does. What we do and say as a leader or a follower depends on us rather than on someone else. If I picked probably the key reason why most people fail in their role as a leader or a follower, this would be it. So what do you mean? Uh, It is very easy to use what someone else does or says as an excuse for us to do or say something we know doesn't please Christ. Uh, In other words, they said this to me first, so I went ahead and said what was on my mind. They mistreated me first, uh, so I didn't care if I treated them well. Uh, They disrespected me first, so I don't care if I treat them with respect. Understand, that is the world's philosophy for behavior and responses. has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. You see, responding in like kind plays well to an unsaved and carnal culture, but it is contrary to the message of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus do and say what we do because of what is in us, not because of what someone else said or did. Notice God allows His Son to shine in both evil and good because God is good. Look at the middle of verse 45. It says, He maketh His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. Listen, God doesn't do that because evil people deserve sunshine. God does that because God is good. And God is good to people because of what is in God, not because of what is in people. In fact, he gives the same truth with a different illustration at the end of verse 45. It says, and he sendeth his reign on the just and unjust. God doesn't reign on the unjust because they deserve reign. God reigns on the unjust because God is good. And God responds with goodness to the just and unjust because of what is in God's heart, not what people do. Now, I realize, as I said earlier, what Jesus is teaching here, uh, it takes some real spiritual maturity. Not everything he taught is elementary school Christianity, uh, but he did intend that we grow and try to apply these things to our life, or he wouldn't have bothered to teach it to us. Uh, The philosophy of handling people will really change our life if we follow this philosophy instead of our culture's philosophy. God responds with sunshine and rain because of who he is, not because of who we are or what we do. Listen, God loved Abraham because of the love that was in God. 
not because Abraham deserved God's love. God loved Israel, not because Israel deserved God's love, but because of the love that was in God. God loved mankind because of the love that is in God, not that mankind deserved God's love. God demonstrates mercy because he's merciful, not because we deserve mercy. In fact, if we deserved mercy, it wouldn't be mercy if he gave it to us. God is gracious to us. He gives us grace, not because we deserve grace, because God is gracious. Listen, if we deserved grace, it wouldn't be grace. God does what he does because of what is in him. In fact, Christ's whole thought process in this particular difficult part of his instruction is that we, as Christ's disciples, should think similarly. And that's what he teaches us in verse 44 and 45. He says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. By the way, I've got that highlighted in my Bible. You say, why? Because every time I read through it, it reminds me that I am held to a higher standard as a follower of Jesus. Listen, anybody can love your friends. Anybody can bless them that bless you. Anybody can do good to them that do good to you. That's not Christ's instruction here. It says, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? And he's going to give why in the first half of verse 45. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Re remember, he gives sunshine to the just and unjust. He gives rain to the, good, to the evil and the good because of what is in God. And in the same manner, he teaches us to respond this way because of Christ in us rather than what someone else deserves. We don't love our enemies because Christ, they deserve it. We love them because it reflects our Father in heaven. We don't bless those who curse us because they deserve it. We bless them because we're the children of God. We don't pray for those who despitefully use us because they deserve it. We do so because it reflects our Father in heaven. Listen, I, I get it. This is not elementary school Christianity. We have let our culture just permeate our thinking in the church and we've let our flesh get the best of us and we think well uh, i'm doing pretty well when i don't do anything to them first but as long as they start it then i'm going to finish it finish it listen that's not christianity at all amen it is a very mature viewpoint on how to handle people and quite frankly that's why few attempt to do it if a follower doesn't do what we expect and we blow our stack or say things we shouldn't, then we let them control us. In reality, we're supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit in us and what is in us. If a leader doesn't do what we expect and we return kindness and love, then God controlled us instead of them. By the way, we're supposed to be controlled by who is in us. What is in us, not what is in someone else. You see, God, the Holy Spirit, is always supposed to be in control of us. We're a Christian. We're always supposed to stay in the boundaries of God's word. Right, let me just ask you tonight, who's in control of you? Who controls your temper? You or someone else? Who controls your love and kindness? You or someone else? Who controls who you treat with respect? You or someone else? 
You see, the fruit of the Spirit is dependent on the presence of the Holy Spirit and us being yielded to Him. It is not dependent whatsoever on what anyone around us does whatsoever uh, at all. Listen, because of Christ in us, if you are a believer, is yielded to the Spirit, regardless of what someone says, regardless of what someone does, you do not have to respond in like kind. Amen. A spiritually mature leader responds because of Christ in them, not because of what any follower does. A spiritually mature follower responds because of Christ in them, not because of what any leader does. But do you see how, if we changed our thinking, how this would change everything? Do you see how this would literally change every conflict we have in our home with our spouse? This would change every conflict we have in our home with our teenagers. This would change every conflict we have in the workplace. It would change everything that happens in the church when we disagree with something. This would literally change everything. That's why I said this is literally one of the keys to healthy relationships in life and healthy leader-follower relationships of any sort when we decide that we will respond based on what is in us and the Spirit of God in us instead of what they do. How we fulfill our role as a follower doesn't depend on our leader as much as it depends on what's in our own heart. How we fill our role as a leader doesn't depend on how others follow as much as it depends on what's in our heart. You realize what that really means is that whether we're a leader or a follower, all we can do is make someone's job around us easier or harder. I can make it easier for my wife to follow me or harder. I can make it easier or harder for you to follow me. Our children are grown now, but when they were in the home, I could even make it easier or harder based on how I respond. Would you decide tonight to change your thinking? to change your thinking from the philosophy of our culture and our flesh to the the philosophy of Jesus Christ. That we respond because of what and who is in us instead of what someone else does. But it isn't just deciding that what we say and do has little to do with what others say and do that helps us as leaders, leaders and followers. Secondly, just turn up a few pages to Matthew 20. We're just... Talking about three things that would help every leader and every follower. Hey, hey, listen, if Christ is in your life, you have some kind of a desire to please Christ and do a good job at what you're here to do. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian teenager or a child. If Christ is in your life, you have some kind of desire to please your parents. Uh, if you're a Christian parent, you have some kind of a desire to parent your children well. If you, uh, in any area of life where God has placed us, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God puts the desire in our heart to do a good job at those things, and this is one of the things that would help us. But there's a second thing that would help us. Here's number two. We need to decide to embrace our roles as servants rather than masters. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, by the way, not everything Jesus said is easy. That, that's why modern Christianity produces zero mature disciples. 
There are some mature disciples involved in contemporary Christianity, but they didn't get that way because of the contemporary message. They, they don't teach on this stuff. We need to embrace our roles as servants rather than masters. Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called them, that's his disciples, unto him. And he said, you know, that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. and They that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. By the way, before I go on, do you have any desire for greatness? Jesus said, let him be your minister. Verse 27, whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Do you have any desire to provide leadership? Let him be your servant. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for many. See, James and John had sought the seats at the right hand and left hand of Christ during his coming kingdom. In fact, they put their mother up to asking Jesus for this in verses 20 and 21. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? By the way, he knew. He wanted her to have to say it. Ever have anything going through your mind that seemed fine going through your mind, but when it came out of your mouth, you thought to yourself, that's stupid. He said in here, what wilt thou? She saith unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one in their right hand, the other in thy left, in, in thy kingdom. And, I mean, they were with Jesus all the time. They knew he had a kingdom coming where he would reign over the 12 tribes of Israel and that the apostles would be uh, each one of them judging one of those 12 tribes of Israel in his future kingdom. He knew uh, there was a right hand and a left hand seat of authority and James and John wanted it. They put their mom up, grown men, grown men, believers, among the best believers there were, put their mother up to asking for them to have a position of authority. Notice how everyone else responded, verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Listen, they weren't mad because James and John didn't have good character and good faith, and uh, Jesus had kind of already set apart James and John and, and Peter, but they, they really, um, more likely, they just wanted those seats themselves. That's why they regularly argued, even up to the last night, of who among them would be the greatest. And Jesus did something here they did often. He used what was going on as a teachable moment. Although I hope you parents understand your children are not open to being instructed all the time. What you're looking for is teachable moments. And this was a teachable moment. And so Jesus is going to teach them. And so he's going to teach them about greatness. And he basically teaches them that Greatness in his book is not like our culture. See, our culture and flesh define greatness as having more stuff and power and authority over other people. Our flesh and our culture consider serving others as a step toward greatness, but not greatness itself. 
Our flesh and our culture are hesitant to serve because they believe doing so is a mark of weakness and inferiority. They believe doing so causes you to become someone's doormat. To them, serving someone else, it's lowly, it's degrading. And Jesus' philosophy, just like our response to other people based on what's in us instead of what they do, Jesus' philosophy on serving and greatness is the opposite of our flesh and culture. In fact, Jesus defined greatness as serving rather than a step towards greatness in verse 26. It not shall be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Listen, serving is greatness. In Christ's work especially, in verse 27, whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. In fact, Jesus himself, he didn't just talk about this. He modeled this in his life in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man uh, came uh, not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom uh, for many. Uh, The philosophy of faith taught and modeled by Jesus about greatness and serving, it directly affects every leader and every follower. Now, in The coming weeks we'll talk in more detail, but anyone with rightful authority from God, you're supposed to use it to serve and better those who look to you. It's not yours to better and serve yourself. If you are a follower, and we'll talk about this more in detail, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, but listen, someone with rightful authority who is leading you, you're supposed to serve in their best interest rather than for yourself. By the way, that's greatness. I didn't define it, Christ did. And both leaders and followers, we very often, we fail to grasp that when we seek to serve, everyone is bettered. Listen, uh, as a husband, God gave me rightful authority over my own wife, and it's my job to serve in her best interest. I'm to serve her. It's my job as her leader. When our kids were at home and I had rightful authority on Sharon and I did as their parents. Listen, we were supposed to use our rightful authority as parents in their best interest. Uh, Just to be extra clear, that that is not talking about doing what your kids want. Uh, uh, Listen, uh, there's a reason God gave children and teenagers parents because they they don't understand what's good for them long term a lot of times. And you're not there to do what they want. You're there to do what's in their best interest, whether they want it or understand it or not. Listen, if your idea of being a leader or a follower has nothing to do with serving, you will never be great in God's sight. And you will never fill your role well. Let me ask you, are you embracing the idea of your flesh and our culture And refusing to serve others because in your own mind it makes you inferior? Are you embracing the instruction of our Savior? Are you seeking to serve to truly do what is best in the interest of leaders and followers in your life? And because people refuse to do this or don't understand it, a lot of times people don't handle themselves well. A lot of people have issues with rightful authority. They have a lot of issues with those who lead them. Leaders have all kinds of issues with those who are following them. And it's not a good thing. 
Because the fact of the matter is, is we are there to serve if we want to be great. Listen, think about Jesus, who rightly sat at the right hand of his Father in heaven, who rightly held the golden scepter of the throne of the universe, who every time he stood or said anything, all of the multitudes of millions of heavenly angels and the heavenly host would rightfully bow down and say, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. And yet, he became a servant. Can't you see him helping people when it was time to eat? That's what it says in the Gospel of Mark. So busy, didn't have time to eat. Can't you see him when he's just so tired, he can barely do anything? Serving and helping the people around him. Listen, you know why he was sleeping in the storm in the back of that ship? He's just exhausted. He's hungry. But he sits at the well while the other men go into the town to get food because there was a woman who needed help. I mean, why do you suppose it is that he allowed them? He's a son of God. He's God manifest in flesh. He could stand in the back of the boat and call uh, the storm, stormy sea to calm. He could call the blackened clouds uh, filling the sky to a clear night sky. He could do that with the word of his mouth, and yet he let them whip him. See him bowed over on that last night on his knees on the ground, washing the dirty feet of the apostles. And contrast that with the attitude of some believers where, well, that's below me. I, I, I don't serve in a cleaning crew. I used to do that kind of stuff. I don't, if I'm not the teacher, eh. Oh, you want me to teach children? Nah, I'm not, I'm not going to teach children that, eh. No, no, that's, I've done my time. Listen, our culture and our flesh, they're completely contrary to Christ. And if you and I, as leaders and followers, if we want to have good relationships and handle rightful authority, both using it and follow it, understand that we, we are going to have to understand that if we're going to fill our role, whatever it is, it's about serving, if we would be great, and we need to understand that uh, we need to do what we do and say what we say, not because of what other people do and say, but because of Christ in us, which gets us to our last thing, which I'm sure you're happy about at this point. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I, I hope you understand, whenever I, I preach a, a message like this, I'm preaching to me. I, I have the same flesh you do. Listen, if Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's no good thing in my flesh, and there's none good in yours as well. And these attitudes that I'm talking about, I get it. This is, this is pretty mature stuff, but it's not impossible stuff. But it is stuff that will change our lives in a very practical way if we let it do so. Which gets us to our last thing tonight, number three. We need to embrace what Christ taught about loving one another to make our leader fellowship follower relationships please Christ. I think most people here tonight are aware that Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another as he had loved them. I personally believe that one of the reasons that God sets the solitary in families and one of the reasons that God sets his people in a church family, that's we are brothers, sisters, in Christ, 
is it becomes the opportunity, the proving ground, so to speak, for our love. See, whenever we are with our family and in our church family, what's going to happen is we're forced to work together. And when we're forced to work together, what happens is it's going to either, as the differences come up in what we should do and how it should be done, we're either going to learn to love one another better or we're not. Have you ever thought about the difficulty of working together in the church? I'm not talking about in a church that meets on Sunday morning uh, and, and they just go home and don't do anything else. I'm talking about a biblical church where we are regularly and multiple times a week, we are trying to combine our lives into three, most diff- three of the four most difficult areas of life. How are we going to handle the money? How are we going to handle children? And what do we believe? Listen, uh, those three things, plus politics, uh, are the things people feel strongly about. And so here we are, we're trying to combine our lives in three of the four most difficult areas of life. How's my child going to be handled? How's the money I give going to be handled? And how are you going to handle my faith, the things that I believe? And that's why God put us together, because this becomes the proving ground for love. Paul went into a great detail, writing to the Corinthian believers, describing biblical love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I'm become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Man, I'd just love to pause there, but I don't have time. Verse 4, he's going to go into 16 qualities of biblical love, depending on how you look at them. Eight negative, eight positive, or you could maybe say nine negative and seven positive. Uh, he begins in verse 4, charity suffereth long, this kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Have you ever really thought about this? I mean, why is the most significant chapter on love written to the Corinthian church? I mean, why isn't it to the Philippian church or uh, the church in Thessalonica, churches that we, we know were very healthy? I mean, why is it to the church in Corinth? If we were to study the book, one of the things we'd recognize is that they had a lot of authority issues. Remember their divisions? I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. They, they had authority divisions, remember them? If we were studying the book, we would find that when they disagreed with one another, instead of uh, working it out and suffering wrong, remember they were taking one another to court. Remember that? Relationship issues. You remember Paul spends time defending his apostleship to them. 
even though he's very clearly an apostle, they didn't like what Paul had to say, and so they questioned his authority to teach them. And in the midst of this whole book where a lot of their problems, they weren't just doctrinal problems, they had a lot of relationship problems, and because of that, Paul teaches them these qualities of love because these qualities of biblical love are the kind of things that help us when we have relationship problems. When we have issues with a leader, when we have issues with a follower, when we are struggling to understand what rightful authority is and how it should be done. Good, old-fashioned love for one another would fix most problems between leaders and followers. Good old-fashioned love for another would fix most of the problems we have here. You say, Brother Wally, what problems do we have here? I'm not really aware of any major ones. I addressed a minor one this morning. Quite frankly, generally, I'm the last person to find out. But even though I don't know of any specifics, I would just bet money if I was a betting person that there's people here that you don't speak to, People here that you have hard feelings toward. People here you don't, quote, want your kid in their class. You don't uh, want them teaching your child. You don't want them watching your child, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all kinds of issues. You know what I think? I think good old-fashioned Christian love would fix nearly all of our problems with one another. I mean, what would change if your relationship if you suffered long with their faults and were kind? What would change as you look at those who lead you in some way if there was no envy and no self-promotion, no being puffed up? What would change as you look at those who follow you in some way if no one behaved themselves unseemly, not becoming, not fitting? What would change in your relationships if you decided to be slow to anger instead of easily provoke? Or if your first thought about them was good? Oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe they meant that when, when they said that. Sadly, said no one. Sadly, said no one. I wonder what would change as we look at those who lead us in some way if we rejoiced in truth instead of sin. If we just decided to bear up under our difficulty instead of trying to complain or blame our way out. To bear up under it. I wonder what would change as we look at those who follow us in some way if we gave them the benefit of the doubt to believe them whenever we could, to hope the best for them and endure their faults instead of dwelling on them. Listen to me. It's a wonderful thing for Bible Baptist Church to be doctrinally sound. We should be. But doctrinal soundness is never an excuse to not love one another like we ought to. And if you and I want to have healthy relationships, if we want to properly interact with rightful authority, whether we are leading with it or whether we are following with it, understand that we must decide that we are going to respond based on what's in us instead of what is in them. You and I must choose to love and give the benefit of the doubt and give them a break whenever we can because we love them. And you and I must decide that in whatever role we are, we are there to serve. And that will literally transform everything. Because Christ's plan is a good one. You quietly stand.